Years ago, Isha Datar pulled a crisp or a chip, if you're listening from the US, from a plastic bag. It was thin, translucent, and when she finally bit into it, it was very crispy. Like a potato chip, salty, bouillon feeling. A couple of bites later, and it was gone. Now, if that single crisp were available in stores, it would have cost Isha something like $100, an exorbitant cost, but one reflective of just how hard it was to make. Normal crisps, the cheap ones, are made from some combination of potatoes, oil, salt, and flavoring. But this one, it was made out of 80% beef protein. Sure, it's a novel take on a classic snack. But the thing that makes this crisp really special is that the steak was grown in a lab and not butchered from a cow. In other words, it's an animal product without the animal. It literally is the kind of stuff science fiction has been speculating about for years. Here's Officer Riker talking to an Antican on Star Trek, The Next Generation. We no longer enslave animals for food purposes. But we have seen humans eat meat. You've seen something as fresh and tasty as meat, but inorganically materialized out of patterns used by our transporters. Today, this emerging field is called cellular agriculture. While the responses to meat grown in a lab are still polarizing... Do I just, uh, just cut them up like regular chickens? Sure, just cut them up like regular chickens. The potential could be massive for our environment. By some rough estimates, lab-grown meat requires 99% less land, 96% less water, and produces 96% fewer greenhouse gas emissions than meat that's farmed. Which means we could save our planet and still eat meat too. I'm Damien Bradfield, and this is Influence, a podcast by WeTransfer. Influence is a show about influence, who has it, who wants it, and how to use it for good. Isha Datar is the executive director of New Harvest, a non-profit research institute that funds open, cultured meat research. She also coined the term cellular agriculture in 2015 to describe agricultural products made from cultured cells rather than farmed plants or animals. Isha isn't in the business of making lab-grown meat, but thinks of her company as a sort of tech steward for the industry. Since 2004, she's watched the field grow from one with no venture capital investment to one with a billion dollars of funding. To see the kind of broad environmental benefit that Isha believes is possible, she doesn't want to support a single tech behemoth. New Harvest is pushing for companies to work together to create safety standards that will support a robust industry with lots of choice for foodies and a long-term positive impact on the world. We have this room to have a rich culinary imagination that maybe we haven't had that many times before in our history. And so, you know, why not embrace that? Isha, thank you very much for being here. Yeah. So, 15 years in the future, I'm sitting down in a steakhouse in New York and I order a lab-grown steak, meaning it's real beef. But instead of being from a butchered animal, this beef is cultivated and grown in a lab. What is this experience of eating this steak going to be like? Oh, that's such a great question. Well, 
First, I'd love for the steakhouse to be the place where the beef is grown. So maybe you're sitting in front of like some large brewing equipment, you know, big stainless steel tanks looking kind of thing, like a, like a brew pub. Um, and that meat is completely local. Like you can see it literally being grown in front of your eyes. And I'd also like for the cells that you are consuming through this steak to be from some animal that hopefully is alive and maybe even present in the restaurant or there's photos of the animal in the restaurant. So I hope the texture is really great. That's the thing that I'm not so sure about just because it's really hard to imitate the texture of meat. We've been trying that with plant-based alternatives for a long time, especially steak. As you eat it, you're experiencing the same nutritional experience that you would have from eating meat, which is kind of for better or for worse. And that same restaurant, I'm going to order a ribeye, which is generally quite a fatty cut with some mm -hmm. marbling in it. Mm -hmm. Is it going to be possible to, to recreate that marbling texture or feel? I feel like anything is possible, and that's easy to say because we don't know what's impossible yet. Um, on that timeline of 15 years, I'm not sure. Um, I think the marbling should be possible. And, you know, maybe it's even possible to marvel with a fat that isn't from beef. You know, maybe we're actually marbling different things together from different species or um, different tissues. Do you think it's going to be ideally marketed as meat? There are people who have very strong opinions about how to market it. And I guess in my ideal world, it is culturally seen as meat. I can remember when 0% uh, alcohol came out that it felt like such a novel concept that it wouldn't really take off. Right. And that, you know, initially it was marketed as, you know, drink responsibly and don't drink and drive. And this is the way that you can right. do it. Whereas now, actually, it seems like it's being adapted to have exactly the same taste as a, a beer. Mm -hmm. If it has no alcohol, but it tastes exactly the same, when you have that first sip and you go, oh, that's so refreshing. Yes. It can't be from the alcohol because it can't physically have got into your bloodstream yet. So right, it's, it's right. a mental thing that we're, we're dealing with here. And I wonder whether it would be the same with meat that for success to happen, it needs to be not thought about. I've actually never heard that before as a comparator. And it is a really interesting one because I still think because we're so used to meat, we don't know what we like about it. Alcohol is is one of the few beverages that just isn't so sweet <laughs> when you're drinking it. And I feel like, you know, meat probably fills some niche like that that you don't really think about, but is a uniquely standing apart place in our palate or in our experiences. How long have people been talking about manufacturing <laughs> items like this? 1894, a French chemist named Berthelot wrote about growing foods without the animals. It only became big in the past 10-ish years because we had just made so many more advances in tissue engineering, which is, you know, the science of cultivating animal cells. This conversation only really became live and could grow in terms of the landscape, but also physically in the petri dishes and so on because of where science has come to. I was trying to find references myself to where it might first be mentioned in sci-fi and I could only come up with two, which was one was an early episode of Star Trek and then a very peculiar David Lynch film. Which one? It's called A Razorhead. 
There's also a book called The Space Merchants, which I think was the 50s, which talks about this big mass of flesh called Chicken Little that they feed and they can control with a little whistle. What's interesting about these fictional mentions is there's so much diversity in them. And they really unpack, you know, what does the world look like where we eat meat from cells? And I, I think that our current kind of landscape of entrepreneurs in this space could take a note from these fictional mentions because right now a lot of the narrative is how do we just replace meat as we know it one for one? So it's completely indistinguishable. But I don't know if that sets us up for success because meat is such a beloved part of our ancestry. And the human nose and tongue are like some of the craziest sensors there are. So those little differences are going to be so detectable. You know, we have this room to have a rich culinary imagination that maybe we haven't had that many times before in our history. And so, you know, why not embrace that? But just to go back to taste and texture, I think we've been fooled over the last few years as to, you know, how things taste and what we understand to be particular flavors. If I take the the flavoring Mm -hmm. of vanilla in America, the man on the street, I don't think actually knows what vanilla really tastes like. I seem to remember some research being done and the majority of people associated vanilla as a flavor that was associated with Coca-Cola. And when they tasted real vanilla extract, were quite disgusted. It wasn't something that they were particularly interested in at all. I would imagine, and again, this complete hypothesis that you know, after eating chicken nuggets for 20 years, you probably lost any idea of what real chicken actually tastes like. <laughs> yes. Interestingly, this past weekend, my dad told me the story of when he first ate chicken because he grew up Hindu. It was just him and his friends decided to eat it one day, like in their 20s. I was like, so what was it like? What did it taste like? What did it feel like? And he had no memory of it, it felt like. And instead, he was just describing how exciting it was that everyone was doing this thing together. I kind of feel like meat is like that. Like, it's just the center of attention. The Thanksgiving dinner, turkey, whatever um, cultural context we give to this is equally, if not maybe slightly more important than the actual products themselves. So how did, how did you get into this? What were you doing before? I was doing a degree in cell biology. And... I have a lot of doctors in my family, so I was thinking of going this kind of medical pathway, but I just really didn't like it. And then I decided to take a meat science class solely because I wanted to do a biology class that I could talk about with anybody and talk about with my mom and like my family members, you know, people who didn't do biology. And everyone knows, everyone has something to say about meat, has some opinion about meat. And I, I was just interested in taking it. And I am a meat eater too. And I'm a pretty big meat eater that grew up in a very beef oriented place in the world, Alberta, Canada. So I took this meat course and then I learned about the environmental impact of meat and was just shocked because I also grew up in a oil and gas place. And I thought that that was the source of all of our environmental woes. But to learn that so much of environmental impact comes from animal agriculture and to make changes to that industry would be so much easier than completely changing the layout of cities, completely changing every vehicle that everyone drives. Not to say we shouldn't do all of the above, but it just felt like animal agriculture was totally flying under the radar when it came to issues of climate change and impact and of course, uh, animal welfare. So my initial thought was we're all going to become vegan. 
that lasted for a couple of weeks. And then I was like, no, that's not going to happen. Or at least I'm not a person who can add to that conversation. But then a few days later, my professor introduced the idea of growing meat from self. And it was just like the most obvious light bulb moment for me where I thought that's so clearly the next step for agriculture. You know, we've gone from hunting animals to domesticating them to domesticating themselves. That, that to me, that just seemed like a really natural progression. And that was, you know, a while ago. And so ago. What, have you tasted lab-grown meat? I have, but I've, you know, I was talking to my team about how overdue I am for a big tasting tour now that there are so many more prototypes. But I, I tasted a steak chip so long ago, and it was like a potato chip, very thin, very crispy. If um, I was to say, okay, I really want to taste that too, and I have to buy it off you, what would that cost me then? I think back then that chip was like a hundred bucks to oh, make wow, one okay. chip. That's seven years ago. Fast forward to today, what would we pay for it today? Um, so today you can buy chicken nuggets in Singapore that were grown from cell culture. And I think it's five Singapore dollars per nugget. Is this a, a company that you've helped? No, this company have not been involved with, but it's called Eat Just. And we have been friendly with them for a very long time. Okay. They make plant-based alternatives. They receive you know, the world's first regulatory approval for cultured meat, which is an interesting milestone for us to all witness. Okay, so Isha and I, we're, we're going to go for dinner. We're going to Singapore. Yes. What sort of place is it? It's a pretty fancy looking restaurant. Um, the photos that I've seen of people eating cultured meat is, seems to always be in one room, but I don't know if that is the protocol or not. Okay. There is something about it that feels kind of misfit-like to me, that they're in this fancy restaurant eating chicken nuggets. And it's deep fried. Yeah. It looks like a McDonald's chicken nugget with the batter and fried. I also am so curious about that restaurant experience because do you have to sign a waiver or something? Or is the regulatory approval like completely make it okay for you to go and eat that and whatever? I mean, I, I don't want to be a scaremongerer, but these things go through my head because it's just so novel. And, um, you know, I have questions about it, even though I'm incredibly excited about it. And the regulatory aspect is something that you are very passionate about, right? Yeah, I mean, I'm very focused on safety more than the regulatory piece because there just isn't very much public data in this field right now. And I don't think it has anything to do with the field as much as like where our society is and how we handle innovation these days, but it's highly privatized. So we have over a hundred companies around the world working on cell-cultured meat, but we have you know a handful of universities working on cell-cultured meat that I'm worried we're not generating the safety data that we need so that when we put these products out there, they really are the best they can be. Because you know with safety, one thing goes wrong and then the whole idea is going to be put on the shelf for decades. So for me, I'm quite passionate about how do we elevate the whole field by answering these public questions. But is that possible to do on a global scale? Yes. So last year, during the pandemic, we knew everyone was at home. And so we did this huge industry-wide safety initiative where we contacted, I think, 83 different companies in the space asked them if they wanted to participate in this initiative, and 50 of them did. And they represent countries from all over the world. And what we did was they all shared their manufacturing process, how they were going to produce cultured meat, so that we could come up with a diagram that could actually inform regulators, no matter what country they're in, how cultured meat was made. 
So what has to happen for cellular agriculture to succeed? What sort of infrastructure or safety regulations does cellular agriculture need to become viable? I always come back to the biggest missing piece and limiting factor in cellular agriculture is a public science infrastructure. You know, so many other new industries emerged because we had such robust public science happening where researchers were funded by governments and so on and really encouraged to be creative. And we just don't really have that in CELAG today. Like there's a lot of private industry that exists, but you know, they are beholden to investors' needs and timelines. And less than 1% of the funding in the field is dedicated to public academic research. And that public academic research is useful for a lot of reasons. One is to generate the data and information that would inform safety, inform regulators and policymakers and so on. A second thing is having that exploratory place where research quantum leaps might emerge from, you know, things that are too exploratory for a private company to look into, but which could really change the game for the whole field. What would you dream of? What would your vision be that if you could wave a magic wand, what would you love to happen? What I would love to see if we waved a magic wand is a dedicated institute for cellular agriculture that had like a hundred million dollar a year budget to just like explore this concept of feeding the world with cells. You know, there's a couple of listeners to this podcast. I know both of them, but they, they might be the right people. So who, who do you think needs to come up with that cash? Well, I know there's a lot of people with more money than they know how to spend. So, you know, to me, this is such a great nonprofit activity is really planting the seeds for the next domestication. You know, we domesticated animals 12,000 years ago. I think domesticating cells is such an exciting thing to be part of. And we need to really treat it like space travel. Oh, so you're literally talking about Jeff now. So <laughs> well, you, you mean sure, whatever. Jeff, Jeff, you need to cough up. Is that what yes. you're saying? Yes. Okay. It's that kind of pursuit, though. It's long term. It's going mm -hmm. to require a lot of different people coming together. And I think that there's a lot of different approaches that we should welcome into it. You know, food is not just burgers and nuggets. There's so much culture around food, especially meat. And, you know, we could really design an interesting place where this research happens that's so different from how science normally happens. You know, we could have it be this cultural entrepreneurship location beyond just a you know purely scientific one domesticated animals in the past and now domesticating cells in the future i think that's a beautiful vision we domesticated corn wheat rice we domesticated plants and all of the animals that we consume and cohabit with too and that's a way of wrangling nature towards a human end i suppose you could say but we haven't really done it at this cell level. I also recognize that there's something scary about that, like so powerful about that. And we do really need to think through the kind of responsibility that comes with domesticating cells. We are at a very critical moment. Um, as we're speaking, COP26 is happening. So if you were standing there on stage at COP26, what's going to be your big environmental pitch I think what my big ask would be is to just dedicate some research to this concept. It has so much promise behind it. There are companies working on it, whether we like it or not. 
And what does it look like to steward this technology towards the best version of itself? You know, one thing that keeps me up at night is we have this promise that we want to create cellular agriculture products to help animals and to reduce the impact of animal agriculture. But what is really holding us to that promise? Governments and regulations are usually focused on consumer safety. So there isn't really any established accountability structure that keeps companies on the mark of, yeah, the whole purpose of our company is to make a better world for animals. What we need right now is these frameworks for coming together as an industry and really making a climate pledge of our own, perhaps. You mentioned this sort of impact label as a, as a concept. And I wonder if, would it be possible or is that, is that something you think would be achievable to be able to you know, really label these products and really help spell out how we're going to move forward? Well, I think the current meat industry is a little bit similar to the fossil fuels industry in that it is heavily subsidized and like elevated by governments. And, you know, when we think about labeling schemes, meat has got to be the least labeled thing out there. There's no information right. when you buy meat. And so I think that cellular agriculture products, their marketing is going to go way beyond labeling towards something like education, towards something where when you're buying that product, it's, it's not just that you feel like eating it that day. It's that you're part of something and you're part of a solution. And to come back around to this idea of like a, a pledge for the industry or the industry aligning around mission, I think labels are, are maybe an interesting way for the industry to align around storytelling. You know, there's, there's a kind of baseline story that all of these companies could tell together. And how can we help, you know, bring that story to life? Mm -hmm. Well, we think about animal agriculture. The one stat that really blows me away is that we dedicate 27% of land on earth to raising animals for food, which is equivalent to all of the landmass of North and South America. We use more more of our planet's surface to farm animals than we do leave as nature that we, you know, inhabit any other use. Animal agriculture is the biggest use of land. So when we propose this idea of growing animal products from cells, we can radically reduce that land footprint because, of course, you can grow cells vertically and you cannot ranch cows vertically. Um, and so the big question is, if we get a third of our planet back, what do we do with it? That's what gets me so excited because land back actually becomes possible. And so, so what do we do if we get our land back? Yeah, I mean, that's the big question. And I think there's a lot of things that we can do. I think what really excites me is the land back concept out of indigenous communities and the idea that we could return land to indigenous peoples. I also like the idea of rewilding land, you know, restoring some of the land that has been turned into pasture or places to grow corn and soy. And I will point out that one of the biggest strategies for reducing climate impact is increasing nature, bringing back nature into our world, enabled by cellular agriculture is like a really pleasant vision that I love the idea of. But I also acknowledge that that's not an idea that's going to just come about on its own or come about because of one company's success. You know, that's the result of a lot of complex interventions 
and coming together with the field and many, many stakeholders to really make that a goal. And I'm also really interested in, in seeing how this plays out from a marketing perspective. I don't think I could have imagined five years ago how successful Beyond Meat or Impossible Burger, the equivalents, are doing really well. It's been really quite amazing to witness. Yes. I'm really optimistic. I'm optimistic too. And I, I think one thing that gets missed the most in this thought experiment is that we're in the shifting sands right now of meat in general. And it's not just how do we get meat eaters to eat these cell culture products? It is how do we introduce cell culture products in a world where there's an appetite for alternatives, there's huge widespread disease and logistics problems happening in the meat industry today that I think are existential threats to animal agriculture already. And how do we prepare ourselves for that inevitable shift? I don't think these products are going to be what shift animal agriculture away. I think animal agriculture is going to extinguish itself. It's just so big and so prone to risk right now that really this is just gearing up for our next diet. So play that forward for me then. So I know this is a little bit uh, blue sky, but traditional farming ceased to exist. What happens to that land? What happens to those farmers? What happens to the cycle 50 years from now? So I don't think traditional farming will cease to exist entirely. If there are kind of three categories of players, I think there's cell culture, people, big ag, and then small farms. And I'd like the idea that the cell culture people and the small farms kind of partner up against big ag, which are kind of known bad actors in a lot of different ways. But I don't know if that cultural alignment is there yet. But in my ideal vision, there is a coexistence there where these small farms are able to make high-end products and really lovely examples of traditional farmed foods because cell ag also exists and is able to meet that mass production demand and you know create the kind of other tiers of food that exist. I think one way that this could all play out is actually terrible epidemics in the farmed animal population. Like oh, right which now, we've, beginning, is, we've been beginning to see over the last two decades, right? Yes. African swine fever has killed an estimated one in four pigs on earth. It's so underreported on. Wow. My final question to you is, I'm not a mathematician and I definitely don't claim to know how we're going to fix climate change and anything else. But in mm-hmm. my very simplistic view of the world, there are too many of us on the planet. One of the ways to fix this would be to obviously consume less. An alternative could be to have no children. I don't see any of that really happening. Do you not yeah. think to some degree finding an alternative to some of the issues around traditional agriculture and the food shortage that we have in cellular agriculture is actually just feeding the problem. Oh, for sure. But I think this is when we bring up the point that if we are to create a better world, it isn't any one single activity. There's like so many missions that intersect to create that better world. And I think one way to bring down population explosion is for women to have better rights, better access to birth control, be more in charge of their own bodies. And, you know, you could say that that has nothing to do with food availability, but it kind of does. There's so many things that we need to work on in parallel to create an abundant world for all of us. 
And that's it for our episode today. Thank you to Isha Datta for completely upending how we think about the future of food. Influence is hosted by me, Damien Bradfield. Our producer is Rachel Swaby, with editing from Elise Hugh and Audrey No. Sound engineering is by Mark Bush. Our WeTransfer creative producer is Linda Mertens. A massive thanks to our studio in Amsterdam, Center Sound. You can find Influence on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen. If you're enjoying the show, please follow, leave us a review, give us a good rating. I had a good rating once, it changed my life. Influence is a podcast from WeTransfer, produced in association with Reasonable Volume. See you next time. Listener.